good afternoon church today we continue with the uh, the book of Ruth again um, among the lessons that I hope we are learning um, when you mention the word Ruth uh, she has become a portrait of commitment a portrait of loyalty uh, a portrait of loving kindness, um, a portrait of hard work, a portrait of resilience, and above all, a portrait of an undying hope in the God of Israel. It's incredible when you think back and, 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 and know that this is a Gentile woman, uh, somebody who really should not have had a place in the kingdom of God, really should not have had the kind of hope that, that uh, she portrays. Uh, but when we look at her pronouncements, uh, they put even the most godly person to shame. Uh, these are statements that we would have expected would have come from an Israelite, would have come from somebody who um, had walked in the faith, somebody who had been to a Nawiri class, you know, and, and studied the things of God and known that God is reliable. But no, it comes from Ruth the Moabitess. Um, let me also say that uh, to capture the history and the background of Ruth, um, she came from a people who had been excluded from communion with God and God's people, uh, completely forbidden to even be where she is right now. And yet, because of her personal integrity, her personal diligence, um, she, God somehow found a way of incorporating her into his kingdom and into his people. We'll read a bit and then I'll just go back to that point just so that you understand how serious a matter uh, that was. Last week we, we, we saw two desolate widows making their way back after a very hopeless situation doors uh, slam shut on their faces. There's almost no hope for a future. Husband's dead. Um, no one to carry forward the name uh, of, of, of this family, of Elimelech. Uh, a, a family whose name was brilliant and hopeful. My God is king, Elimelech. And yet here they are, um, without hope, without a future. Now, at present, without a country, so kind of heading back to where they had originated from more than a decade earlier. Almost a stretch of wasted time. You know, what do you do in those circumstances? In verse 19 of chapter 1, the book of Ruth, so the two of them, meaning Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So there's something even about her physical appearance that has changed. They are not quite able to recognize her. Obviously, she's been away for a very long time. But beyond that, um, the ravages of, of, of having been in a foreign country, the grief that she has undergone, uh, the long trip back to Bethlehem, everything, you know, speaks desolation. They are not able to recognize her. Is this Naomi? Um, then she responds to them. Um, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi 
when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And so we say there is value in being able to go unedited before God. And the issues that you have are with God, not with anybody else. So she doesn't blame anyone. She says, it's the Almighty that has done this for me, to me. And, and it's him who has testified against me. I went away full, now I'm coming back empty. The Lord has done this. And that ability to come before God uh, and edited is powerful. Because then we are addressing the right person. Because God has the ability to take our grief. He has the ability to convert that grief into joy. He gives beauty for ashes, he says. You know, he comes to minister to those who grieve in Zion and to those who mourn in Israel. That's his call, call sign in, in Isaiah 61. Um, he comes to mend the brokenhearted. And so as we cry out to him, it's him who has, has the ability to receive our disappointment, our anxieties, our fears, our anger, and our grief, and he's able to do something about it. And so this is Naomi's way um, of, 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 of grieving um, loudly. Uh, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Again, we say a glimmer of hope is the barley harvest, uh, even though she says she's returning empty, uh, it's like the coffers are waiting because God has filled his land with blessing and there will be a harvest. And, and not just a physical harvest, even a spiritual harvest is waiting. And this is the way of dealing with uh, God dealing with our people. He says that I will repay the ears that the locusts have eaten. So even though you might look back and maybe you've had a streak of bad fortune for a long time and you're looking back at the family history and you've said for the last decade, you know, there's been no prosperity in this home, there's been no uh, marriage in this home, there's been uh, businesses have failed, you know, and so on. And there's been a streak or a number of deaths, you know, God sends the years of refreshing and he says that he is the one who repays the years that the locusts have eaten and he's able to bring back even that which you thought was lost. So for Naomi, this will be a, re a reality for her. She doesn't know what lies ahead. Um, and, and that is what faith is all about. It's putting one foot in front of the other when you cannot see the future. Because faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. If you can see it, you don't need faith. You just need to take it. But if you can't see it, that's when you really need to exercise faith. And say, because God is good, because God is not a malicious God, because I know the character and the nature of God, my circumstances are dire, the, what I see is desolation, but you know what? I'm going to trust the, the character of God, that he can make things out of their opposites. The fact that I'm facing disaster doesn't mean that that's what the future holds, because God is able to call the things that are not as though they were. And so you march on forward in the hope that the God that you trusted in has seen you, knows your need, has heard your prayer and has answered them somewhere, it's just that you cannot see it yet. The answer is in the future. So you keep marching forward and you keep going towards God until, as Malachi says, the sun of righteousness shines back on you, rises on your face. So then, um, chapter 2 begins a kind of a different phase in the story of this family. Having responded, I guess, to a, to, a call, to a call from the inside to return to Bethlehem, the house of bread, God will begin a new work. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. Worthy here speaks not just of his status uh, in society, it also speaks of his character as a man. 
uh, a man who is worthy is a man of standing, a man of integrity, um, most likely a, a man of grace and kindness, as we will see. So a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain um, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Note, the situation hasn't changed. There, now Ruth is even more disadvantaged, at least before she was in Moab, home, home tough, because she's Moabite. She's now a foreigner in Israel, in Bethlehem. But she takes initiative. She just doesn't sit there and say, look, man, Nikubaya, now it's even slightly worse. Because they haven't been in Israel for decades. So they have not planted. There is nothing for them waiting. So they are, they are, having, they are actually facing starvation if she doesn't do something about it. So the situation is slightly worse than before. Moab, they had a home, they had a place, all right? But they were bereaved. But here, they are homeless, you know? And so the situation is even worse. But she takes initiative. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. After him in whose sight I will find favor. She knows no one. So I'll just go, you know? And, and, and for me, this is what true faith is. Um, and, and this is where divine favor meets human responsibility. That she's saying to herself, I will trust in this God of Naomi so much that I will step out there and see where the hand of God will guide me. She, she won't sit in the house and feel sorry for herself and for Naomi. What do we do? She doesn't even ask Naomi. And Naomi is a country woman here. She should be giving guidance. She says, let me go and glean, you know, and, and, and see what we can gather. So there, there is hope. And this taking of initiative again tells us something about the character of Ruth. Though we know that God will bless her and do amazing things, there's something that she is doing at a personal level, not just sitting and waiting for things to happen. She wakes up and says, let me go and glean. Now, gleaning is not an honorable job at all. Actually, it's, 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 um, it's, it's just like begging, okay? Uh, but because the God of Israel is a gracious God and he had sought equity within the community of Israel, Gleaning had a law that governed it. And gleaning uh, was, was, was the system that God has instituted in Israel to mitigate against extreme poverty or abject poverty. Just to make sure that there was dignity among people who could not earn a living uh, because they didn't own any of the factors of production, maybe except labor. All right? They didn't have land, they didn't have any wealth of any kind. This would be classified as the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, and the alien or the foreigner. These are the most um, uh, vulnerable groups, susceptible to exploitation, and literally some of them, if some of these laws were not in place, they would literally starve. Um, and, and here is one of the laws that governed gleaning. A bit of the heart of God about what we should do with the poor. Leviticus 19, verse 9 to 10. And this is what God commands. When you reap the harvest of your land... Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. 
So God puts the force of his name and his authority and saying, this matter, I command. You can't do this. So leave the edges of your field because there are people who, are, who might starve if you harvest everything. And don't, you know, like reap and then come and, and, and go through it again just in case you left something. Leave it. Even if the grapes fall to the ground, leave them. There's somebody who desperately needs that. Maybe we should try that with Kenyans. If you drop some money, you just keep walking. Don't. That is how you would know how difficult it is to obey the laws of God. If you drop 500, unarudi, unadrop 100, unachukua 500, alafu unaendelea. You look for change. Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 22, again emphasizing the same law of gleaning. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Meaning, if you go back for it, you are calling on God to dry up the work of your hands. But if you leave it, God says, I will bless the work of your hands. In other words, you've left it behind, leave it. Somebody else needs it. Continue. I'll ensure that your harvest is enough anyway. Okay? When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Look at the repetition. These are the vulnerable groups, the marginalized groups, the ones who might fall into great danger. If you do this, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. So he's saying, remember your vulnerability when you are under somebody else's oppression and sometimes you wouldn't get enough food even for yourselves because your masters, your taskmasters were cruel. Do not be like them. So in the land I'm giving you, I want you to practice generosity. Because I will cause a good harvest to come your way. Nobody should go hungry in your country. I wish some of those lessons would be learned by us as a people and also our leaders. Because we have enough in this country. We have enough. But we have become so selfish and some people are hoarding for themselves. Millions and billions. For what? Well, countrymen, fellow countrymen are going hungry. God's society is to be an equitable society. And it's not that everybody must have the same. That's not the point. But that those who have much, you know, can be generous and distribute to those who do not have too much. When God rained manna from heaven, one of the statements that he said there is that they went out to collect. And he would tell them, collect so much of it. And, and, and when they came back, the one who had gathered much did not have too much. The one who had gathered little did not have too little. Somehow God distributed the amount so that everybody had just what is enough. And that's the whole thing. Because God has given us enough um, uh, for, for what we need. In the New Testament, we see another reenactment of that sense of equity. Because when they gathered together for prayer and, and for breaking of bread and so on, they said that they had everything in common. Those who are very wealthy and God had blessed them, they sold lands and houses and came and put the, uh, you know, money at the apostles' feet and it was distributed as each had need. And so this mentality of hoarding more and more and more, it's a greed that doesn't honor God. 
And God expects that wherever we are, we will exercise and practice generosity. And maybe we need to ask ourselves what we are really doing with what God has given us. And all of us have relatives uh, not very far from us uh, who probably are living in abject poverty. Um, or you prayed with somebody and they come here and what they have shared as a prayer need. For you, you are wondering, wow, people still struggle with these things. Why? Because God has blessed you over and over. You don't have to send that person away. Because already what they've prayed with you, you know it's a need that you can meet. And right there then you can say, I think God has answered your prayer. You know, uh, I'll, I'll handle the school fees for your son. Just give me the bill, give me the name of the school. Don't worry, you go home in peace. God has already done that. And we do those things. When you do those things, it honors God. Because you are being sensitive to his Holy Spirit. When it comes to matters of food and, and, and little things like that, you know, um, for other people, it's not a little thing, it's a mountain. They don't know where the next meal will come from. And maybe God has so blessed you over the years, the last time you prayed for your next meal, you can't even remember. Because it's no longer an issue for you. God has provided. And as he provides for you, please remember those for whom that is a current struggle. And reach out to them in love and in kindness and give to them. If you don't want them to know that it is you giving, give anonymously. Your pastors are here. Come and say, you know, I prayed with some people. I know this is a need that exists. You know, I, anytime you have a need like that or a child is not able to go through school because of school fees, please tell me. And then I can make available those resources. And, and it's a great blessing when you do that. And you will not have less, by the way. And, and let me just say that there are many of us who for, uh, that would be an easy calling. You live out the gospel in many different ways, but one of them is in what we do as a community with the poor. The Bible says that those who give to the poor honor God. God takes it very personally. You know. In the last judgment, when he says, you know, uh, one of the things that, that, that he's, he, he, he's very particular about when he divides the sheep and the goats on one side, and, and he says, you know, the basis of this is, is social justice. What is it that we did with the needy? I was in prison. You did not come to see me. I was hungry. You did not feed me. I was thirsty. You did not give me a drink. You know, depart from me. And it becomes a basis for judgment during the last. So God cares. What we do with the poor matters to God. And more so, those who are of our own families. I want us to think about those. Don't even think about the, you know, because don't think about the gender ones out there. Think of those that you are related with, you know, by flesh and blood as a beginning. Then think about that you are those who, that you are related with because they are part of the family of God. And, and as you give to them, you honor God and God is pleased with what we are doing. So then, these laws were instituted by God for the purposes of dignifying the community of faith, the people who bear the name of God, that nobody should ever be degraded in, the, in their own eyes or in the eyes of others just because of want. And God said, I will give you enough so that if you share it out, then the people of God uh, can receive honor. And others looking at this community of faith can admire it in the way that we live and in the way that we dignify one another. So then, um, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I like this, happens too. Here is where now divine guidance meets human responsibility. 
She steps out by faith. She doesn't know. She says, I'll go and glean to, in whichever field, wherever I find favor. As she steps out, God's divine guidance leads her to the farm of Elimelech. So both are working in tandem together. So human responsibility does not negate the transcendence of God or the guidance of his hand. Both work together. But God needs us to initiate the action saying that I trust you so much, God, that I will go there and see where your hand will lead me. This is Ruth's um, very strong point. So she happens to go here. Um, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. Again, the timing also belongs to God. At the point that she comes into the field and is gleaning, Boaz will come along. He's a land, the wealthy landowner. The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. This is the time of the judges where, you know, faith has really, really slackened in Israel. Everybody does what is fit in their own eyes. There's a general backsliding of the community of faith. But God focuses us to this particular family where God is obviously not lacking, where he's known and where people are actually practicing. So that even in a dark environment, even in a place where faith seems to have failed, God always has a remnant. And you know you can choose to be that one who says, I don't care what the rest of the world is doing. I know my God. I know what he has told me to do. I will be faithful and I'll do what is right. So even his greetings, the Lord bless you. You know, the Lord be with you. He's very connected to God and, and no one has been called a man of worth. You know, not just in terms of what he owns, but in terms of who he is. And we can be men of worth uh, by choosing to be that. So he comes and greets them. Um, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Um, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, this is the supervisor, whose young woman is this? So he notices her immediately. Maybe she's a beauty of some kind, you know. Uh, and men do tend to notice beauty. I'm just saying. Okay? If you're sitting next to your wife, you look straight at me. And you say, I didn't say that. That's the pastor. Okay? Because we, we are somehow attracted to the outside, the physical, you know? And so he notices that. It could be that she was very beautiful. It could be that because she's not a local, foreigners has a, have a way of standing out. Because they look slightly different. It could be that because it's a village situation, he knows everybody else who's a reaper, but who is this new person who has come? So he asks, who is she? Um, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here is a supervisor. He's got many reapers. And there's a, this foreign girl who has come. And just within one morning, he has a testimony about her work ethic. There's something about her, you must agree, that stands out. He's already saying she came very early in the morning, has continued, has not stopped until now except for a short break. So immediately she's beginning to stand out. And this is the part of human responsibility. How you engage in the environment and in the place that God has called you 
is, is, is really up to you, not up to God. God can lead you to the field where you can glean, you can decide to do a good job, a bad job, an average job, or an exceptional job. And those around you will testify about how you work. There are people who God sends your way, and many of you who are employers, you will have testified to this. Maybe somebody came your way, you didn't think much about them. But after they'd hung out with you for a week or two, and the time for them to depart had come, you said, no, no, you know what, you don't have to go. We have something else for you. Because they have distinguished themselves in what they are doing. And this is what Ruth was. Her work ethic was excellent. Never mind that what she's doing is not dignified. Because when you are a gleaner, everybody knows you are poor. Everybody knows you are desperate. If you are a gleaner and a foreigner, it's even worse. If you are a gleaner and a foreigner and a widow, oh my goodness. You know? But look, already strangers who she's never met are already testifying about her work ethic. So she's beginning to stand out. That's your responsibility, not God's. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now he's engaged her directly. And there's probably some time that has passed between this first conversation and what we're reading by what we will learn later. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another uh, field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Again, tells us something about the environment and the attitude of the people who were gleaning or harvesting to the gleaners. You see? So he has to overtly give a command, don't harass this girl. Don't touch her. Meaning, it could, it could have been a, a really dangerous thing for her to be doing in that time in Israel, again, the days of the judges. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he wants to keep an eye on her. He wants her to be within a safe environment. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him. This is giving us a glimpse of her attitude. What kind of a human being is she? She's humble, you know, she's grateful. She, she thinks she's not deserving. And the way she prostrates herself before Boaz just shows how, how grateful she is for the opportunity that God is giving her. So she bows down to him and says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Again, a bit of the attitude of the Israelites towards foreigners. Okay? But Boaz answered her. Now listen, the testimony has already gone out. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. So he did interrogate the, the, the guy a little bit longer to know, okay, tell me more. What else did she do? So it has been fully told me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So look at how far the testimony has gone of this woman. Even what she was doing in Moab has followed her. Because God has her, his hands and his eyes on her. Because she's special. She's given uh, such a, a committal to her mother-in-law. And God is saying, wow, what a woman. And, and, and it's interesting, again, I want to say, having come from a Moabite, um, this scales her oath to many, many degrees high. Because even for the Israelites, they never made this kind of a commitment to God. 
Now she's making it to her mother-in-law. Let me tell you the actual position of Moabites in the eyes of God in those days. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 and 8. God says this, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the tenth generation. So these are people who are completely excluded from the kingdom of God. The reason? For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, the son of Baal, from Pethor in Aram Naharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you, do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So there's no chance, no possibility that she can never be incorporated into the community of faith. I want you to understand what personal responsibility can do. That single-handedly, Ruth is going to change the narrative and cause God to change his mind about Moab. And she is going to redeem the name Moab in, in, the, in, the, in the tongues and in the eyes and in the face of Israel. That that word Moabite will no longer be spoken with spite because of what one person has done, her action. Listen to how God asked Israel to treat other communities. Do not despite an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. Okay? So, uh, Edomites are the de descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. Okay? They are related to you. Do not despise an Egyptian. Just imagine the guys that enslaved them 430 years. Because you resided as foreigners in their country, resided, you know, is somehow an, a little bit of a, you know, subtlety there. Because you decide, resided as foreigners in their country, the third generation of the children to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Just the third generation. But this one, even to the tenth generation, completely forbidden. The actions of one person can change the narrative of an entire nation. I'm saying this because there are many of us who find we're in a minority as believers. In our families, you might be the only one who's saved or the only family that acknowledges God in any one way. And therefore, you feel diminished, you feel uh, ineffective. You don't even try to rise up and speak on behalf of God. Because what difference will it make? These people don't believe. All they do is mock me when I speak. No, 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 no. Here is a young woman who, without words, by the way, purely with her actions, will cause the narrative of an entire nation of Moab to change in the eyes of the Israelites. Because of the love, the commitment, the diligence, and the integrity that she would display along the way. Never underestimate what you can do as one individual. Completely given, completely um, committed to the Lordship of Christ. You can change the trajectory of your family. You can change the trajectory of your community, um, your church, your nation. That's the kind of authority God has given his people. And it was known, even from the days of Solomon. He said, you know, when he prayed to God and saying, you know, um, when a man sins against the other one, please, and looks to this temple, the part that was read to us by Madenge earlier, you know, Please hear us from your uh, uh, heavenly abode and answer us. 
God told him, I have heard your prayer. And I will do this. But the condition is, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. That is a, a, a posture of dependence that I'm not doing this on my own strength. Will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. That's how healing comes. Responsibility still given to God's people who know him and are fully devoted to him. So don't ever say that you're just yourself, you can do nothing. Ruth, orphaned, foreigner, gleaner, without anything going for her, is going to change the narrative for an entire nation. So, um, Boaz is, 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 is now reaching out to her and, and guiding and protecting her. Um, and this is the divine hand of God working through Boaz to ensure that Ruth uh, has a place because of who she has become. So she falls to her face, bows down, and, and Boaz gives a report of what he has heard. In verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. So Boaz, again, his character shining through, he's kind, he speaks gently, he knows how vulnerable she is, and so, so he does everything that he can to cushion her and to make her comfortable and to reassure her. If you are a reader of romance, you know, you will see that a young, beautiful, hardworking, faithful foreign woman meets a worthy, wealthy, godly, kind man. You probably know where the story will end. <laughs> At this time, no one has intentions, by the way. All right? But this is again to tell you, this is how God guides people. You know? And, and, and Ruth in herself, in her diligence, in her integrity, in her hard work, is already an attractive young woman. You know, anybody would like a woman like that. And so she, she is already, in a sense, almost spoken for by virtue of who she is. She knows who she is. She carries herself well. She works hard. In a sense, sometimes in Christian counseling, we tell women who are looking for, to be married, you know, what are you doing to prepare yourself to be that partner who will be, you know, marriageable? You know, so there's a part that God will not do for you. That's a part of human responsibility. Position yourself so that you are beautiful and attractive and desirable in the best possible way, all right? The man on this other side, he's a worthy man. He's a man of integrity. He's hardworking. Um, he's going to be a good provider. Already you can see that. And so when the time comes and he's ever called upon to do uh, his due diligence and duty, you can see the two will mash up to be a beautiful um, match uh, even before God. So, so human responsibility and divine guidance work in tandem, and where the confluence happens, that's a place of God's destiny. So you can't just sit there and say, oh Lord, you know, bring me somebody, all right? He will, he will. But the bigger question is, what is it that you are doing, you know? To make yourself that person who God is not ashamed to say, I have my daughter here. 
you know, and, and I'm bringing you as a man of integrity to marry her and vice versa. What kind of a man are you, a kind, gracious man? Or will I give you one of my daughters for you to oppress and to mistreat and to dominate? So the two work together. You do your part in preparing yourself for what God intends already to do. Because God already intends to bless you, but make yourself blessable. That's the point. I hope I'm not laboring to make an obvious point here. Um, so then, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your muscle in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left. Um, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she's already found a lot of favor in Boaz's eyes. And he wants her to, to be looked after and he wants to ensure that her gleaning is not laborious or is not frustrating or demeaning. Again, he tells you how societies are the same. The poor are treated a certain way with disdain and with neglect and with dismissal. So he's saying, don't do that to her, all right? Intentionally even leave some sheaves so that she has something to glean. Don't frustrate her. So she finds favor. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Note, she continues to glean. She knows she has found favor with Boaz, but she's not to, going to take advantage of the favor that she has found. And since so, so, you and I are my boys, see, order some of your trucks to take some, you know, some grain to, to Made, you know, because after all, she's your relative. She doesn't do that. After she's been fed and everything, she wakes up and she continues to glean until evening. Again, a testimony about her work ethic, uh, a hard-working woman. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what uh, she had gleaned, and it was about an effort. That's like maybe 20 liters of barley. And she took it up and, and, uh, and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left uh, over after she, being satisfied. So she, she has not forgotten she has a mother-in-law to take care of, you know. And she carries some food and ensures that her mom is fed. Uh, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she comes back with this large harvest her mom wasn't expecting. Again, gleaners could even be chased from the fields by mean landowners and come with very little. But now she's come with a whole harvest, almost like, Allah, you know, where did you get all this? May God bless the man under who, who, uh, who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So the reputation of Boaz as a kind man is already known. And now that Naomi has fallen into misfortune, he's saying he still remembers to be generous to us. You know, even though he knows, you know, our people are dead and so on. So he's looking, she's looking at the favor as a favor done to um, her late husband, Elimelech. Um, and Naomi, okay, so um, he says, uh, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men 
until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Again, the environment is hostile to foreigners and to gleaners, the poor, the vulnerable. And, and, and so uh, this is protection. She sees it as God's uh, pervenient grace. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and which harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Provision has been assured for the rest of the harvest, and it probably will take two or three months before that is over. And so they don't have to think about where will food come from, where is provision. God has already taken care of that through this man, Boaz. What a beautiful story of God's provision and God's pro protection of his people. As you step out in faith, as you believe God for the future, don't, don't just sit there. And, and when you're given a menial task to do, do not look down upon it. It's not the task. It's the attitude. Sometimes God will give you an intentionally menial task to examine what is the condition of your heart. And there are some people who will not do it because they'll consider it below them. You know, they'd rather stay like that. And God says, uh -uh, I don't like that attitude. Give me your best. Show me that you can be faithful in little. And if you're faithful in little, I can entrust you with much. Because God is not careless. He won't give you what you can't handle. But when you show him you can handle even the least of tasks, then you say, your heart is faithful. Therefore, I can trust you with an increase, and I will give you more, and I will give you more. Until one day he says, now welcome to the kingdom of your father, because you have shown yourself to be diligent. Very quickly, let me touch on something else that is important. Ruth and Boaz are the threshing floor. This is an, 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 an interesting one that advances. And, and the story is, is moving from hopelessness to a glimmer of hope. And now the page is going to turn to something that is way more than what could have been anticipated. Here is the story. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. Naomi's heart is a kind, loving heart. She's still thinking of her daughter-in-law, this poor girl from a foreign land. She followed me here. I have nothing to give her. So I should not, I not seek rest. So she's thinking about the future. Is not Boaz our relative with whose women you are? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not... Make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. She's a foreigner. And so these are instructions that are culturally bound. She has no possibility of understanding what this thing is all about. But she say, whatever you say, I will do. And again, we see a bit of Ruth and her submission to a, an older, higher authority to guide her into how to behave in this particular society. And, and this, uh, perhaps as, as we read a text like this, um, the covering of, a, uh, of, of the feet, this has to do with something interesting that she had spoken earlier. The man is our close relative. He is a redeemer. Now, the concept of uh, a kingsman redeemer, uh, again, it's one of those um, laws that had been instituted by a God to mitigate against abject poverty. The kingsman's redeemer was a close relative of the family who, for example, in case a family fell into dire poverty, like what the, the Elimelech family is facing right now, 
the closest relative had a responsibility to come in and buy out the property so that it may revert back to that family and so that they would not be perpetually poor. It's how you prevent the, the, the what the, the economists call it, the vicious cycle of poverty, all right? So that at one point it has to be stopped. And the Kingsman Redeemer is the one who does that. He comes and buys off that property and ensures that it reverts back to that family, um, mostly in the year of Jubilee. But here, here is um, a law that you might want to hear about. It's called the Levy Rate Law. Levy Rate, le Levy is from uh, the Latin meaning brother-in-law. The Levy Rate Law. Okay, it's found in le Levit uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Um, and God again instituted this to ensure that there will be no abject poverty in Israel. And this is what he says. Um, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So it's a law that preserves the, the family lineage of somebody who passes away without a child. Obviously, if there had been property bequeathed to this brother, then it means that the property remains with the widow you know, and her children perpetually. Again, it mitigates against abject poverty in a patriarchal society where property is owned by the men and not the women. So it was God's way of showing kindness to those vulnerable groups. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, so again, you will not be forced, okay? She shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him, not the place of elders. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go to him in the presence of the elders. She shall take off one of his sandals, spit on his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. So it's a disgraceful thing to be done. And you carry the disgrace of having refused to carry on your brother's line. And, and people who did that is because, number one, they were selfish because they knew if a son is born to this, this lady by me, then the land that belonged to my brother would be inherited by the son, not by me. So some of them would intentionally refuse because of that. Um, and God took it very badly. Uh, there was a guy called Onan who refused, you know, to, to, to carry on his family lineage. Um, and, and, and basically what God did, he was called Onan and God killed him. That's what the Bible says. Because he, and it says he was a wicked man. Yeah. And, and so, it, it, so that's called the Levirate law. Obviously, in the case of Elimelech and, and Naomi, uh, Elimelech dies. Uh, he has two sons, but the two sons also die. So in a sense, there's no one to marry Ruth. So in that instance, the, the, the Lord had provided another law, that, that one of the Kingsman Redeemer. So the closest male relative uh, to the family head would then have the obligation and the responsibility to come and redeem the property, the land, and the widow so that that family lineage will not die off. So, so, so the instructions that Ruth has given 
to um, uh, Naomi has given to Ruth is the customary formal request of coming to a kingsman redeemer during harvest season and, and, and lying at his feet. Again, when somebody is at your feet, it's a position of humility. And, and at his feet, when he wakes up, he will be told, spread your gown over me. In other words, I desire to come under your protection. So it's, it's a formal request to redeem the property, to redeem the land, and if he was willing, to marry the widow so that the family line could be continued. And this is customary. So it's not, um, it, it, Naomi was not sending Ruth to go and seduce Boaz. That's not the idea. In a, and again, it's customary. Again, in, in our context, it might look a bit confusing. But that was the formal way of asking the kingsman redeemer to rise up to responsibility and do the duty of a kingsman redeemer. And it's a very powerful thing. Uh, God himself had used the same metaphor with Israel. Let me see if I, I can find it. I, I read it as probably the last thing we'll do because of our time. God is uh, referencing the birth of of um, the birth of Israel as a nation. And so this is how he phrases it. Uh, this is in Ezekiel, um, the book of Ezekiel. I won't tell you exactly where so that you don't turn so that you can listen. I'll tell you afterwards. The Lord God uh, said to me, Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. So he's referencing uh, the, the genesis of Israel before Abraham uh, when they lived in Mesopotamia. On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you, you washed in water uh, to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. Because that's what they used to do to newborn babies. No one looked on you with pity or with compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day that you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I say to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stuck naked. Later, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you, that's the same phrase that's used there, over you, and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So that's the action that is referenced by the kingsman redeemer. By her being at his feet, she's saying, spread the corner of your garment over me. Let me come under covenant oath to you and let me become yours. So it's a very formal request. Later on, God says, I, um, you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you and embroidered and dressed you and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose. Okay, you're struggling with nose rings there. You know, <laughs> earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. 
So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and finest flock. God is saying, look at your former state. Look at when I came and betrothed you to me. And the picture later is how God beautifies his bride. How he makes us beautiful and clothes us with linen and jewelry and gold. We become beautiful and attractive. Again, that's a challenge to us about what we do with those who come our way. So then, um, my last statement. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. The same term, wings or garment. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have done uh, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you have asked. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now, it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, very good. Let him do it. But if he does, is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. That's how the transaction goes. But note, so it's, it's a relationship of integrity both ways. Boaz has authority, has, has wealth. He can take advantage of this young girl. He doesn't. The girl also can say, hey, my times are hard. You know, I've paid my dues. This is a wealthy, it's called Mbaba. <laughs> eh? let, let, let me do my thing, you know? And confuse the guy, you know? Because after all, what is she looking for? She's looking for security. And, and she can go and confuse the guy, and she's beautiful, seduce him, and the guy, before he knows it, I'm, I'm a badlisha title, you know? <laughs> but this is a relationship of integrity both ways. Boaz is a man of integrity. She has approached him, and she wants to be redeemed by him, so she's going to be his wife. But such is his integrity that he says, by the way, I'm not even the closest relative. There's somebody else. So, and the right thing to do, I will go approach him. Let's ask him whether he will redeem you. If he will, well and good. Because that's the right thing to do. If he won't, then I can come in and redeem you. So he's very diligent in following the law and what it needs to, uh, how it needs to be done. Ruth, on the other side, is just obeying her mother-in-law. This is what mom said, so this is what I have done. And, and, and it's beautiful, again, to look at uh, both him as an older man of integrity, Ruth as a younger woman who could have run, and he notices this, he says, you could have run after younger men, but you did not. So as a young woman, she has integrity, she has preserved herself well, she carries herself with, 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 with such sweetness that she is a desirable woman to marry. And I think that's a challenge for our current culture, to know that you know, we can model integrity, we can model purity, we can model godliness, even in a very dark society like this, in the days that the judges ruled. Okay? May the Lord bless you. We'll continue from there. I'm sorry we have overshot our time. <laughs> <laughs>